It's good to see you tonight. I'm so glad you're here. Hope you had a good week. A um, lot, uh, lot of issues going on in the world. And um, boy, we as God's people have got to pray and to uh, live with faith and a sense of urgency. And I'm grateful that God's word gives us what we need in such difficult times. And that's what these days are in many ways, in many respects. There's a lot going on in the world. The world seems to be on fire. But <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is in charge. And uh, his kingdom will prevail. And that's the overarching message that we learn from the book of Revelation, which we began studying on Wednesday nights just a couple of weeks ago. And so tonight we come to chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. We're coming to a section of the book that deals with the seven churches that John mentioned earlier in his greeting. Those churches, the cities uh, where those churches were located are mentioned in verse 11 of chapter 1. And then ch chapters 2 and 3 consist of seven letters that were written to these seven churches with a message from the Lord of the church. And who is the Lord of the church? Well, John gets a, a glimpse of him in chapter 1 as Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John. John's exiled there on Patmos, but he receives a remarkable vision and records it in detail for us in the first chapter. Now, a lot of times in a study of the book of Revelation, people want to skim through these first three chapters, and really chapters two and three in particular. They want to skip over these letters to the seven churches because they're eager to get to the action-packed section of the book. You know, the, the, the seals being broken, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, and all of that. And yet, it's unfortunate that we would rather hear about the cataclysm of the last days rather than being confronted with the urgent challenge of our own present moment. And so we come to Revelation out of just a sense of curiosity for the future. We've missed the purpose of the book. And so it's important that we establish that early on in our study of Revelation. Now, I showed you this last week, but the purpose of the book is to enable believers from every age and in the midst of every circumstance to view what's happening in history from God's point of view rather than man's point of view. It's easy for us to get discouraged if all we're doing is looking at the circumstances of life and the happenings of the world. If we're just looking at that from our perspective and from our worldly humanistic point of view, we'll get sidetracked, we'll get lost, uh, we'll, we'll lose perspective for sure. But what the Lord wants to do through the book of Revelation is to provide believers with his perspective on history, with his perspective on, on the state of things. And the message of the book is this message that through Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so his victory is the victory of his people. We stand in his victory. And so again, that's why this, these messages or letters to the seven churches are so very powerful. 
And just by way of introduction, each one of these letters to the seven churches burn with a sense of urgency. This is an urgent message from the Lord Jesus to these seven churches. And the message to the seven churches is just as timely today as it was when these letters were first written. One person has said this, so many of the ills within the modern church could be addressed if we would listen to the message of these letters to the seven churches. Now, each of these churches are unique in their circumstance. They're unique in their situation. They are seven literal churches that were in existence at the time of of writing here. And yet, at the same time, they're also representative of the local church in every age, in each passing generation. You might could say that within these letters to the churches, Jesus outlines for us his plan for the local church. He reveals the fact that he's placed the world or placed the church in the midst of the world and and he intends for his church to be a light to that world which is under judgment. So it's very important then that he's speaking to the church. He's addressing the church. And so again, Revelation is a book of prophecy. It does deal with the future. But before we come to that, there is a very urgent message that is needed for the church. And so God intends for his church to have influence in the world. He intends for his church to be salt, to be light. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that believers are the salt of the earth. Uh, We're the light of the world. A city that's been set on a hill. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. So God has placed his church in the world as an embassy or an outpost of heaven. And you know, an embassy serves as a house for ambassadors. And each of us as believers are ambassadors who were sent into the world with a message, the gospel. And we have a mission mandate. So these seven letters then show us how important the church is from God's point of view. One person has said this, it would be a mistake to overlook the importance and the timely nature of these letters. They're filled with both warning and encouragement to churches that are struggling with sin and complacency on the inside, as well as persecution from the outside. So in these letters, Jesus teaches the church how the church ought to live, uh, given a world that's becoming increasingly dark all while at the same time dealing with issues that creep up within the life of the church. Now think about this. Think about the task that we have as the local church. Think about the task that the leadership of your local church has. A weighty task, providing shepherding, dealing with issues in the life of the fellowship, while at the same time equipping the members of the fellowship to live for Christ and to be witnesses in the world. And so collectively, as a church, all of the time, we're dealing with issues on the inside and we're dealing with issues on the outside, aren't we? And so constantly, we're barraged with all kinds of issues. And, and, and if you ever feel overwhelmed by that, you'll find some encouragement from these letters that the Lord Jesus writes to these seven churches. Now, why seven? Why is it that there's seven churches and not eight churches or nine churches? 
Now, we know that at the time of writing, there were more local churches in the world than just seven. But again, keep in mind the fact that seven is a very important number as we study the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a, a, a number associated with fullness, uh, completion. John's going to talk about a scroll with seven seals later on, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments, and so seven is a number that represents fullness or completion. So seven churches, these letters given to the seven churches, you can see these churches as being somewhat symbolic of the church universal, uh, the bride of Christ in the world. And yet, at the same time, these were seven literal churches chosen because they represent uh, various conditions that have existed throughout the church's history. You might could say that these churches represent seven basic categories of churches that exist in any period of church history. Every local church, in some way, will have characteristics of one or all or some of those churches that are being addressed here in Revelation chapters two and three. And these churches deal with various issues. The Lord has to deal with particular issues in each of these local churches. For example, the Laodicean church, the issue was an issue of lukewarmness. The church that we're going to look at tonight, the very first church, the church at Ephesus, uh, the issue they're dealing with is a crisis of motivation. You ever had a crisis of motivation? Most of the times, you know, we have that crisis in our home when it's time to get out the door for school. It's, a, you know, we get... But the issue being dealt with at Ephesus was one of love, motivation, the why behind the activity of the church. And so that's what we're going to look at. If you've got your, uh, your Bible open there, let's read just the first seven verses of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who were evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Some translations say you've left your first love. So remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, I'll come back to this in just a second, but what you find in this letter, you'll also find in the other six letters, there's a pattern that's established uh, in the churches that are mentioned here in this particular passage of Scripture. 
I threw this up on the screen. Most of your, uh, the back of your Bible, you'll find a map of the Mediterranean world or the journeys of the Apostle Paul. We probably should answer the question, where were these churches located that are being addressed? Each of these seven churches, they're literal churches at a very specific place in time. But you'll notice there, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, these seven churches were located in Asia Minor in what's present-day modern Turkey. And the seven churches, the seven cities are represented by those little yellow dots, if you can see that there on the screen. Ephesus being here uh, near the coast. Patmos is to the southwest, roughly 45 miles off of the coast of Asia Minor. That's where the Apostle John was when he received this vision of the Lord Jesus. And so the letters then that are being addressed to the churches uh, as they're mentioned in sequence, it's almost, it's almost a circular type of address. As these letters are being addressed to these churches in these cities in Asia Minor. And there's sort of a zoomed in view of how the cities would somewhat form a circle uh, as they are mentioned. And then in the actual letters themselves, there's a, there's a pattern a very similar pattern that follows a seven-fold outline. Seven letters to seven churches, and there is a seven-fold outline that's true of each letter. Uh, for example, the letter will begin with a word of correspondence uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, or to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and so on and so forth. So that's how each letter begins with a word of correspondence, but then there's a, sp a special word of characteristic. That is, each letter will begin with some type of characteristic uh, uh, attribute or characteristic of the Lord Jesus that was revealed in the first chapter. So you'll notice in the seven letters, some particular um, aspect of Jesus's character that was revealed to John in chapter one is emphasized in these seven letters. And more often than not, it was a particular attribute that had been lost in the minds of those to whom the letter is being written. So by the way, Jesus is the corrective to the issues going on in the church. <laughs> He's the health of the church. He's the life of the church. In him, we live and we move. We have our being. He's the life of the church. John saw him as walking among the seven golden lampstands. Each of those lampstands was a symbol of these seven churches. And the fact that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands, this means he's central in the life of the church. He's walking among his people. He's doing careful inspection into each heart, into each life. He's evaluating the ministry of the church. He's evaluating the leadership of the church. He's looking at our motives as will be revealed in this first letter. And so there's a word of characteristic, a word of correspondence. That's followed up by a word of commendation. With the exception of Laodicea, each of these seven churches had something going on in the life of the church that Jesus commended You'll notice tonight in Ephesus, the Lord commended the activity of the church. They were busy for his sake. And yet, each of the letters also has a word of criticism. Commendation, 
but also criticism, with the exception of two churches, the church at Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. These are the only two out of the seven that do not receive a word of rebuke. The only thing Jesus has to say to those churches are words of commendation. Then there's a word of correction. Whatever it is that's being criticized by the Lord, he offers that up with a word of correction, telling them how they can address the issue. That's followed up by a special word of challenge. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's a phrase that comes up in each of these letters. It's important that the church pay attention to the voice of God in Scripture. And then that's followed up by a word of comfort. The last thing that's mentioned in each of the letters is is some component of revelation. It's mentioned at the very end of the book. So each of the letters begins with a characteristic of Jesus that's revealed in the first chapter of the book. And each of the letters conclude with some kind of promise that's found in the last chapter of the book. And so in that way, you see how vital it is that these these letters are included in the overall message and purpose of the book of Revelation. Now, the city of Ephesus, this this is where the church at Ephesus is located. And the issue that's being addressed at Ephesus is this issue, folks. By the time of of John's exile, the church in Ephesus had a very rich legacy, had a wonderful past, but the church had left its first love. They were getting by on past success. They were busy There was a lot going on. They had a a wonderful legacy of godly leadership. But the issue that Jesus is addressing with the church at Ephesus is an issue of its love. Now, you need to know something about the city of Ephesus itself. As a city, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. And in the first century, it had a population of roughly 350,000, upwards of even a half million that I have read. And if we were to go to Turkey, we could tour the ruins of the ancient city of Ephesus. And in the first century, Ephesus was a primary harbor town for the whole region of Asia Minor. The city was strategically located along the Caister River, not far from the river uh, where it lo- uh, emptied into the Aegean Sea. And so travelers by ship who disembarked at the harbor, they would travel into town along a a column-lined road called the Arcadian Way that led right to uh, the center of the city. Now, in John's day, there was silt that was being deposited by the Caister River, and it was slowly beginning to fill up the harbor there in Ephesus, which forced the city to constantly keep working in order to keep a channel open. It's a serious threat for a city that relied upon harbor traffic. Well, in time, the battle would be lost, and the ruins of Ephesus today are located some six miles inland from the sea. And yet, there in Ephesus, here's the issue, a very physical, tangible issue. What was water became land. What was land became water. And it all served as a fitting metaphor of what was happening spiritually in the church at Ephesus as well. What was the issue? Well, passionate love for Jesus Christ was slowly eroding 
and was being replaced by busyness in his name. You know that sometimes busyness in a church can become a substitute for intimacy in the church? You know the issue of Mary and Martha in the New Testament. You've got, you've got Martha, they were sisters. Martha's busy, busy, busy. Every time you find Martha, Martha she's busy. And on one occasion, she was there in the kitchen preparing a meal. Her sister Mary was always sitting at Jesus' feet. And on one occasion, that really frustrated Martha. And she comes to Jesus. She says, Lord, will you tell that good-for-nothing sister of mine to get up and get in the kitchen and help me out? And Jesus says, she's chosen that good thing. Martha, you're distracted. You've got a lot of things you've given yourself to, but Mary has chosen that one good thing that would never be taken from her. What was Mary doing? She was sitting at the Lord's feet. Now listen, activity and busyness is important. There are things that we have to do in life. There are things in the church that we've got to do. But folks, never must it ever become a substitute for sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's often been my experience that whenever you move away from a place of intimacy with God spiritually, eventually the work is going to become heavy. And eventually you're going to experience some measure of burnout where there has been a loss of intimacy. But where there is intimacy with God, there is energy in the work. And so Jesus here is warning the church that was so very busy, but the church had left its first love. Busyness, activity had become a substitute for affection. A couple more pictures there of the ruins at Ephesus. There's an amphitheater, spectacular sight. But a few things that I want you to notice here in the passage about the church at Ephesus. The first, notice what the Lord actually has to say about the activity of the church. What is it that's been revealed about Jesus here? Uh, well, he's described in two ways in verse one. He's holding seven stars in his right hand and he's also walking among the seven lampstands. And again, you go back to John's vision in chapter one. Uh, the Lord is seen standing in the midst of those lampstands. Those seven stars are in his right hand. There's a sharp two-edged sword going from his mouth. Verse 20, the Lord explains to John what that meant. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand and the seven golden lampstands, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so now you get to verse one in chapter two, John is commanded to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The word angel there, it's a word that means messenger. And a lot of times where this word is used throughout the New Testament, context determines whether it's referring to a heavenly being or someone who was a representative messenger. And in this case, the issue here, the angel uh, that's, that's being referred to uh, more than likely is the messenger of the church or the leadership of the church, the primary spokesman of the church. We would say perhaps the pastor who's being addressed. 
So what you have here with Christ who's holding the seven stars, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the fact that he's got the messengers of the church in his hand, he's the authority of the church. He's giving direction to his church. He's walking among the lampstands, which means he's actively involved in the church, walking up and down every aisle, walking up and down every seat, peering into every heart. He's the one who gives the church its marching orders. And as such, he's the vigilant watchman of the church. He sees what we do. He hears what we say. He knows what we think and what is the true condition of our heart. So when he's looking at the church at Ephesus, he's saying, I see all kinds of activity. And that's a good thing. He commends them for their activity. Uh, what, What were they involved in? Well, faithful service. He says in verse two, I know your works. The word know there is a word that speaks of knowledge uh, upon close inspection. So when he's looking into the situation of the church, uh, he sees all kinds of service being done in his name. The church was actively working. Notice the words toil, patient endurance. They didn't tolerate evil, but they stood for what was right. We would say that the church in Ephesus was a church with conservative values in the midst of a pluralistic society that was constantly being pressured to conform. Let me tell you something. The church, (laughs) throughout the history of the church, the church has always been under pressure from an unbelieving pluralistic society pressuring the church to conform to its ideals. And for the longest time in our country, we've been the recipients of being in a a, a country where Judeo-Christian ethic, that kind of thing has flourished in society. But you know what? We're now living in a post-Christian context, aren't we? And we are feeling the squeeze. We're feeling the pressure as God's people who are holding to what's true in the middle of a world that is saying something completely different. And in that way, we can understand what the believers in the first century were experiencing. But to a much larger degree, they're experiencing even persecution for their faith in a pre-Christian society. There in Ephesus, you had um, the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was located right there in the heart of the city. It was an elaborate structure made up of 127 pillars And it was perhaps the very first building in history uh, to be built completely of marble. But it served as the house of worship for the goddess Artemis or Diana. It also served as a depository for wealth and kind of made it the bank of Central Asia. Um, so, So... In addition to this, you've got a temple that was built in 90 AD uh, to the emperor Domitian at the time who required worship and supreme allegiance. So here you've got a church in a city that's facing a barrage of cultural hardships. For believers living in the city at Ephesus, uh, life was indeed difficult. In fact, there's a a rendering of what that temple would have looked like uh, in its heyday. I like how Eugene Peterson 
paraphrases verse number two. He says, I see what you've done, your hard, hard work, your refusal to quit. I know that you can't stomach evil. In fact, the words translated patient endurance there or perseverance, it's a word that means holding up under pressure. When the Lord is looking into the church at Ephesus, he sees a church that's holding up under pressure, pressure that was coming from all sides in society. Uh, If there were Christian businessmen in Ephesus, when they became believers and they became associated with the church, well, that could have jeopardized their business practices. Their businesses could have been boycotted. They found themselves being slandered by society, even attacked physically. So believers were subjected to all kinds of social ostracization, persecution, and Jesus is saying, I know all about this, and I'm commending you for your faithful service. And then he says, I'm commending you for your general um, or genuine sacrifice. They refused to get caught up in the cultural moment to bow down and worship the emperor, to go along with the crowd and conform to idolatrous practices and values. And man, they were paying a price. And they were willing to pay that price. That's what the church had been enduring and dealing with. Another thing that they're commended for by way of activity is the way that they were fiercely standing for what is true. Their doctrinal stand Notice the Lord says in verse two, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So they were committed to sound teaching. They were committed to orthodox teaching, sound doctrine. They knew the Bible, and they were well established in that knowledge. Furthermore, you get down to verse six, it says that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus himself also hated. Now, what in the world does that mean? Two times this is mentioned in the New Testament, both to the letters addressed to the churches. Uh, The first time, it's this passage here, the church at Ephesus. The second would be uh, Pergamos, I believe. But the Nicolaitans were founders of sort of this libertine movement that crept into these churches at the time. And, And most scholars have said that they taught a form of immorality and idolatry that they said was compatible with New Testament Christianity. They abused grace. They misunderstood uh, what the Apostle Paul actually said about the nature of the law. Uh, They would encourage the eating of meat, sacrifice to idols. They encouraged participation in sexual immorality that was associated with worship in the temple at Artemis. One person expressed it this way, the Nicolaitans were responsible for this teaching that one could worship Caesar in the flesh and Christ in the spirit. So so there was a group at this particular time, there was was a thought in in certain of these churches that to avoid social embarrassment, you can assimilate pagan values and pagan practices and bring that into the life of the church to make the church more acceptable to a pagan culture. Now you tell me this book isn't relevant right here. Isn't that the very thing that you see happening in in so much of the church, the confessing church in the West? Abandoning doctrinal fidelity and faithfulness in the name of cultural appeasement, 
Jesus says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And the church at Ephesus hated those deeds too. And so he's commending them for their activity. But you see, the crux of the issue is, verse four, Jesus says, there's something I've got against you and it's a matter of your affection. So there's an indictment then that's offered given the fact the church had a rich legacy. By the way, Acts chapter 18, chapter 19, the apostle Paul made a quick stop in Ephesus on his second missionary journey. Left behind Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, the church was planted in chapter 18. Paul comes back sometime later on his third missionary journey. He spends three years in Ephesus himself. And from there, he sort of makes it the base of his evangelistic outreach throughout all of Asia Minor. All of the churches in Asia Minor, they're planted by the Ephesian church. Each of these seven churches, the other six have Ephesus as their mother church. After Paul spent time there, you know who he sent to be the next pastor? Young guy by the name of Timothy. In fact, church history even tells us that after Timothy, uh, the apostle John himself was a long tenured pastor at Ephesus and, and he was serving as the pastor at Ephesus when he was exiled by Domitian to Patmos. Now think about the legacy that this church had. You had Paul as its pastor. You had Timothy as its pastor. You had John as its pastor. And you mean to tell me they still had problems with pastors like that? (laughs) Jesus says, despite this rich legacy, your faithful service, your sound doctrine, I've got something against you. Those are sobering words. When Jesus looks into my life, when he evaluates my situation, what a humbling thing to hear him say, I have this against you. Here's an area about in your life that I'm concerned with. Here's something that disappoints me. Here's something that needs to be addressed before we go any further. This one who has eyes like flaming fire, he's looking beyond the surface and the kind of stuff that we're so easily impressed by. And he's looking to the motive behind it all. He's looking upon the heart. That's what he's doing here with the church at Ephesus. And despite the fact that they they appeared to have it all together at the surface, the cracks were beginning to show. They needed a reality check, a spiritual echocardiogram. So the issue, he says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Think about it. Orthodox doctrine, the lives of the members lined up with their confession, and yet they've abandoned the love that they had at church. We would say it this way. The church was in danger of becoming pharisaical. The issue being addressed, it's not an issue of the mind, but it's an issue of the heart. They knew all the right things. They did all the right things, but the motive behind it all was beginning to slip away. The church was in danger of a legalistic trap that would lead to their demise if it were not corrected. We're doing all the right stuff, but somehow they had forsaken the right motivation, which by the way, both are important. Obedience, 
The activity, that's important. But beyond that, the motive behind it, men and women, is important. Why do you serve? Or why should you serve? Why should you be involved in a local church, especially in a day where being involved in a local church is kind of no longer in vogue? Well, I'll I'll go when I feel like it. I'll serve if I feel like it. I'll sing if I feel like it. I'll teach if I feel like it. What's the motive behind it all? Is it not our first love? Is it not love for the Lord Jesus that should well up within the heart of every individual believer that anchors that believer to a local fellowship of other believers? So this is what Jesus is talking about here when he's referring to first love. And some people said, well, what is, what is this love they had at the first? What is, what's being referred to there? Uh, is it their love for each other as believers? Is that what's being addressed? Somewhere along the way, they, they sort of fell out of love with one another. Uh, is it love for God? Is it love for God's son that's being addressed? Uh, is it their love for the gospel? I tend to think the answer to the question is all the above. You think about the two great commandments Jesus said, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God is key to possessing genuine love for people. Where there is no love for God in my heart, there won't be any love for other people. Genuine love, biblical, agape kind of love. And without that, all you're left with is a love that's based upon selfish interest. So the first love being referred to here, this is love for Jesus and his gospel that resulted in their love for one another and the world that was awash in spiritual need. So you see how it's all interrelated. Love for Jesus, love for his gospel results in love for one another in the church and love for a world that's lost and in darkness and in need of salvation. So we could say that in Ephesus, their relationship with God had become more of an academic pursuit or a hobby than that of an enraptured lover. What's your relationship with God like? Could it best be described as as, as an academic pursuit or a hobby, more like a hobby? Or can you say that it's it's, it's like the love that one lover has for another? Uh, I'm caught up with just a sense of love for one who loved me first. And notice it doesn't say they lost the love they had at first. They abandoned it. That's what it says. They left their love behind. The idea is that of distraction or neglect. They had all kinds of good things going on, but it doesn't represent the greatest thing. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's love for God that undergirds and promotes true ministry and doctrinal integrity. So the foundation then was being threatened of the church. Y'all know something. Listen, we are absolutely notorious as the people of God for turning something that's meant to be a means to an end to an end. You say, what are you talking about? Well, what are we doing tonight? You know, our Bibles are open. I'm up here preaching, teaching. 
You know it's merely a means to an end. And what's the end? Well, the end is the glory of God. Love for God. Exposition of God's word that ought to result in obedience and greater love in my heart as a disciple for the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about service within the church. Think about singing. Think about serving in children's ministry. Anything else. All of this is simply a means to an end. And sometimes when we lose sight of our first love, all this stuff becomes the end itself. That's why we get all bent out of shape about it whenever something changes. Because it's become the end. It's become the be all to end all rather than simply the means to an end. What is the end? It's love for God, men and women. It's passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus That kind of first love that you had when you first got saved. You remember when you first got saved? You'd charge hell with a water pistol. That's what you'd do. You'd give whatever needed to be given. You'd show up every time the doors were open to serve. Why? Because you just couldn't get over the fact that the Son of God bled and died for you and loved you and gave himself for you paid the price for all of your sins and the the message overwhelmed you to such a degree that you just had to give your all to him. We say, well, yeah, but I've matured since then. (laughs) Matured, is that a word? Soured, that may be the word, but matured, that's not the word. That's what happened in Ephesus. 40 years after the founding of the church, there was a loss of first love. That's the issue that's going on. Listen, I love this. Danny Aiken said that their obedience was more out of a sense of duty than out of a sense of first love. The difference between the two is massive. Legalistic duty says, I obey and Jesus gladly accepts me. But first love says, Jesus accepts me and I gladly obey. He wants our obedience, make no mistake about it, but he also wants our affection. And the kind of, the kind of obedience that he delights in, folks, is the kind that flows from a heart that's full of love and wonder. A redeemed heart gladly obeys. What about the third thing here and final thing? It's the admonition to the church. A word of correction, course correction. Notice the Lord says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So, just as he's going to do with each of these seven churches, the Lord Jesus is offering a corrective to the criticism that he offers. And for Ephesus, this church that was big on activity but little on affection, he's giving this threefold admonition and the sequence is very, very important. And the first thing that they were to do is to remember. In other words, go back in your mind to what God did when he saved you in his grace and in his mercy. Call to mind his saving grace in your life. 
Remember, remember his goodness. Begin thinking about those difficult seasons in your life that he's brought you through. (laughs) You know what? We tend to forget things that we ought to remember and we remember the things we ought to forget. We've got to be intentional when it comes to remembering the good things that he's done in our life. Man, he's been so faithful, hasn't he? He's brought us through some stuff. He's brought you through some stuff in your marriage. He's brought you through some stuff as you've been grappling with an issue in the life of one of your children. He's brought you through some emotional stuff. He's brought you through some seasons of darkness personally, hasn't he? He's been faithful. Beyond that, he's given you his spirit. He's promised that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. He's paid for your sin debt. You are forgiven. You've been accepted freely in the beloved. You've been made a part of the body of Christ. You have heaven as your hope. You have eternity to look forward to. You've got life in Jesus Christ. He says, remember, remember. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Don't ever want to get over that. The second instruction in the sequence is is repent. He says, uh, you need to repent. Turn around. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. It's not a one-time deal that happened when you first got saved. Yeah, to come to Jesus Christ is to turn from sin. Yet, I need to repent every day in my life as a believer. Because without repentance, I lose my spiritual sensitivity. So we can get easily, we can become, we can become calloused if we're not careful. If, if we don't daily repent and walk with God, Jesus is no longer the center, but he's somewhere on the peripheral of my life. If that's the case, man, I need to repent. And then the third and final instruction there is return. The Lord says in verse five, do the works you did at first. And and so notice notice the secret here. It's, It's an open secret, but returning to your first love involves intentional effort. He's not just describing emotional feeling. It's not like we're waiting for some feeling to return. No, he's saying you need to be intentional in this respect. Faith always comes first. Feelings follow. So remember how good God's been to you. Repent of indifference. Return to those first works. Return to the Bible. Absorb its words like a dry sponge. Return to your prayer closet. Return to selfless service born out of a heart of love. That's what it means to return to our first love. And so serious is their situation that the Lord says, if you don't correct this issue, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, that doesn't mean they were in danger of losing their salvation. It's not what that means. Uh, It means that this particular church would lose its ability to give forth the light of his truth. They're the lampstand, he's the light. And he wants them as a lampstand to shine forth the light of his truth, the light of his love into a darkened world that desperately needed it. So here's what happens when we lose our first love. When the church loses its first love, 
it ceases to have an illuminating impact on the world around it. If you have no love, the church has nothing with which to authenticate its message. It doesn't matter how loud the preacher is, how good the music is, how great the teachers are, how good the fish is on Wednesday night. If you don't have love, none of that other stuff matters. None of that other stuff matters. Daniel Webster was a statesman in the early days of our nation. He served as a congressman. He served as a senator. He also served as a secretary of state under three different presidents. There's an interesting story about his life. When he was a struggling young lawyer, he fell in love with a young woman named Grace Fletcher. She was his first love, the first woman he ever gave his heart to. He spent many, many hours holding skeins of silk for her while she knitted the thread so that it would be sewn. Remember, men, when you were courting, you're, y'all would, you'd go anywhere, you'd sit with her, do anything if it meant you got to spend time in her presence. Well, that's what he did. It didn't matter to him what they did together as long as he could be near Grace Fletcher. Well, on one of his visits, he waited for just the right moment to speak to her what was really on his mind. Working up the courage, he said to her, Grace, we've been untying these silken knots for many weeks together, and I think that it's time that we tie a knot which will not be untied for a lifetime. He then took a long red ribbon. He began to tie an elaborate knot in the middle of it and then handed it to her. She added a few more loops, completing the knot, and that silent act together was the ceremony of their engagement. It wasn't long afterward, Daniel Webster married Grace Fletcher, a marriage that lasted until her death. He lived on, but his affection for his first love never died. Following his own death in 1852, there was a box that was found among his personal belongings. And inscribed upon the box were these words, precious documents. Within the box, there were letters that he and Grace Fletcher had exchanged during their courtship and during the days of their marriage. And these love letters were well-worn I mean, almost as if they had been taken from the box and read many, many times and then put back in the box. But also in that box was one other memento that he had kept through the years. It was a long red ribbon that was still tied in a tight knot. He was a man who never lost his affection for his first love. Now listen, I want that to be true of my life in terms of my relationship with the Lord Jesus. How tight is the knot of affection that binds your heart to Jesus Christ? I'm gonna tell you something. He loves you as one of his own with an everlasting love. But when he looks into the depths of my heart, oh, how I want want him to see someone who truly loves him. 
Would you stand with me for prayer tonight? Lord, tonight as we bow, it's easy, Lord, for our lives to be so consumed with activity, both ministry activity in the church, but activity that we're so involved in. Lord, I think about our church, we've got so much activity. Thousands of events that happen right here on this campus every year, whether it be church activity or school activity. And Lord, it'd be real easy for us to just sit back on autopilot, consumed with busyness, but oblivious to the barrenness in our own hearts. And so, Lord, we don't want to drift. And tonight, Lord, may we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, you commend our works, but you inspect our works, not just the what, but also the why. And Lord, thank you for your love for us. God, may we remember your faithfulness and be intentional. And repent, Lord, where issues arise and we need to repent. But return to those first works. And we make this our prayer tonight in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.